Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. The most fundamental question in all the universe, and really the most fundamental question in Scripture, is a question Job asks in Job chapter 9, verse 2. And he asked the question, how can a man be in the right with God? And Job, in his suffering and in his pain, his friends are coming and they're telling him, trying to help the best they know how, but not equipped with all the truth. They come to Job and they say, Job, you must have done something wrong for God to be angry with you. And if you would just repent of whatever you did, God maybe will take the pain and the suffering away. They're wrong. And God says they're wrong at the end. But for now, Job begins to think, maybe that's true. What can a person, what can a sinful human being do to be made right with God? How does that happen? Job understands the predicament rightly. The theology surrounding it might be a little off, and God has to come in and correct things at the end. But he understands the predicament rightly. Something is wrong between sinful humanity and a holy, righteous God. He understands the problem and the predicament, but there's no answer given. In fact, there in Job chapter 9, verse 33, Job just falls into despair and says, there is no arbiter. There is no mediator between God and man that can lay his hand on both of us, that can bring reconciliation. Job says, oh, that there was such a mediator. If there was such a person who could intercede, who could mediate, who could make things right between man and God. That brings us to the name that we're going to discover for God today. And as I introduce this, you can go ahead and turn to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah 23. The name we're going to look at today is the name Yahweh Tzid Kenu. Gave Zane the hardest name last week, Yahweh Mekadishkem. Uh, which has become just sort of a byword by we say in the office to one another when we want to say something to each other, Mekadishkim. Like, good day, Mekadishkim. The day is pretty hard, too, though, right? Sidkenu. I didn't just give the hard ones away. That's a hard one, too. Obviously, a combination of two words, the word Yahweh, which you know by now, the Lord, translated in your English Bibles, uh, God's covenant name, I am, that I am in a name form, Yahweh. And then we have this combination introduced to it, this word sidkenu, which comes from the Hebrew root sedek, which means righteousness or rightness. And so if we put those together, we get that name. The Lord is our righteousness with those prefixes and suffixes on there. The Lord is your righteousness. And this revelation of who God is answers the question that Job has. How can a man be made right with God? And God reveals himself in this name to be exactly that. The Lord, your righteousness. Look in Jeremiah chapter 23 when we see this name introduced. And we'll give a little context to this in a moment. Jeremiah 23 beginning in verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to all for, uh, to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Yahweh, said Canu. Let's pray. God, this is your inerrant, inspired an infallible word. Bless it as we read it. Bless it as we preach it, that the Holy Spirit would work as he has promised to through the preaching of your word to save the lost, to strengthen believers, to edify us in our faith, and to make us more like Jesus. Do that today through the preaching of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This prophecy for Jeremiah comes at a low point for Judah. Uh, Babylon has overtaken Jerusalem around the year 597 B.C. And the exile of Jerusalem and the inhabitants of Judah, the southern kingdom, begins in 586 B.C. and all of them are taken to the kingdom of Babylon. And very literally here, the sheep have been scattered. Israel, two centuries before this, the northern kingdom, has already been scattered by Assyria and now the southern kingdom, Judah, is being scattered by Babylon. And here's God's judgment on their sin, God's judgment on their idolatry, their spiritual adultery against God. They are scattered into these various nations and these conquering kingdoms. But God brings the indictment a little closer to home here in these opening verses. In verses 1 through 2, he indicts the wicked rulers, the wicked leaders. Jeremiah calls them shepherds of Israel. And look at verses 1 through 2 again. Woe! To the shepherds. That word woe to us just sort of sounds like some sort of melodramatic statement, but it's actually a curse. It is a damning voice from God to these false shepherds who care for my people. There's a little sarcasm there. You have scattered my flock and you have driven them away. You've not attended to them. And see this contrast. Because you have not attended to them, I will attend to you for your evil. And God indicts these wicked rulers, the priests, the kings, the prophets, those who should have been caring for the people had not, and God judges them for it. In verses 3 through 4, though, we have a promise of God to regather his people. In verse 3, look at that. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock, those chosen by grace, remember Romans 9, the remnant chosen by grace, out of all the countries where I've driven them and bring them back to their fold. And look at verse 4. I will set shepherds over them. Who will care for them? Good shepherds, true shepherds, who will look after and tend the sheep. In verses 5 through 6, we see the identity of these shepherds, or should we say, the shepherd. It says in verse 5, I will raise up for David, that means from David's line, a righteous branch, Nazareth, or Nazareth, the word branch. And he shall reign as king, a shepherd king, 
shall deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness, the things that their wicked rulers had failed to do. In his day, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And look at what his name will be in verse 6. Yahweh Sid Kenu, the Lord is our righteousness. So what promises do we see from God here in this passage that culminate there in that name? Number one today, God's faithful shepherd is promised. Shepherd was a familiar picture in the ancient Near East, uh, not only in Jeremiah's time, but even in the time of Jesus, as we'll see in a moment. It's a familiar picture, recognizable, relatable, universal. These people who take the sheep for the sheep owners, and they lead them and guide them and protect them and feed them and guard them, and have been used many times in the Bible to this point as a metaphor for leaders, or what leaders were supposed to be. The kings and the priests and the prophets, those who God has set in charge over the people to lead them and guide them and care for them and to protect them. Jeremiah says the problem, though, the Lord says, these leaders in Israel and these leaders in Judah have failed. And the people have been literally like sheep scattered, not just in the fields, but to different nations, different countries. But here is a promise of another Good shepherd, I will raise up good shepherds. And it's interesting that this person, these shepherds, are not relegated just to good leaders, good kings, good prophets, good priests, which would definitely be in view. But as we get to the end of this section here, we see it's one person. And it's not just any king, any priest, any prophet, any shepherd, any ruler. It is God himself that will come and shepherd his people who will be their righteousness. Turn over to John chapter 10. Keep your place there in Jeremiah. We're coming back. But look at the gospel of John chapter 10. We read these verses and we know these verses by heart. Many of us do. But without that background from the Old Testament and this claim from God that he himself will come and shepherd his people, it's hard for us to understand the shocking nature of what Jesus says here in John 10. Unless we had that background that it is God who promises to come and be the good shepherd, we don't really understand, the eyebrows don't raise enough as we read Jesus' words like those in John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now you see why the religious leader's eyebrows would have been raised why the people listening would have wondered who this, who this person thinks he is. Yo, you're the good shepherd. So you think you are God's savior? You think you are God himself come to save his people? And that's exactly what Jesus is claiming. Look back in verses 2 through 5 of John 10. He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. He calls out his sheep by name and leads them out. When he, was brought, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. The sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Look down at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. See, that's the same picture. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. 
I know my own and my own know me. Look down at verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Look even further down at verses 27 through 30 and listen to the promise Jesus makes as our good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. One more precious promise Jesus gives us back in John 6. If you want to turn over there, that's, that's good. It's just a few pages there to the left. John 6, verse 39. In the same vein of promises, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. All the sheep that the Father had given to Jesus before creation belong to him and he dies for them and he cares for them and he protects them and they follow him they know his voice and they listen to him Jesus says in Luke chapter 19 verse 10 the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost as the shepherd who left the 90 and 9 to find the one The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Israel's shepherds, Judah's shepherds, had failed. And they faced God's judgment, as did the nations themselves. But here is a new and a better shepherd who will not fail. Jesus says, I will have all that the Father gives me. And I will lose none of them. And I will raise them up on the last day. And so the question for you here today is, have you heard the voice of this shepherd? Have you heard his invitation to you in the preaching of his word, in the proclamation of his gospel to come, to turn from your sin, to turn to him, to believe? Here's the good news for you today. If you have not heard that voice, if you have not heeded that voice, he's calling here today still through his word, through his gospel, through this preaching, by the Holy Spirit. And the invitation is still open to you even today. Even if you turned away a million times, the invitation is open to you today to hear him, to believe, to repent, to follow, to obey, and to be saved. Believers, I want to tell you this morning and encourage you that if you've heard that voice and you've responded in faith to Jesus as Savior, turning from your sin to follow him. If you've heard that voice and you're following Jesus, here is that wonderful promise of security in him. That no one and nothing is able to snatch you out of his hand. The Father that gave you to him is greater than all, Jesus says, and no one is able to snatch you out of his hand. Here today, believers, your feelings might be accusing you. Your heart might be accusing you. Satan, the accuser, is certainly accusing you. And here's the the shocking part of that. They're all right. You are a sinner. You are not worthy of his grace. You do deserve hell and judgment. But the good news is that in Christ, it is not you who have given yourself to Jesus 
It is God who gave you to Jesus. And if it's God who gave you to him, it is God who will keep you in him. It is God who is protecting you, who is guarding you, who is preserving you. And God is faithful and good and trustworthy, even though we are not. This is the good news of God's good shepherd. Number two in Jeremiah's prophecy, getting to our name today, God's gift of righteousness. Because there's some mechanics behind this. We have to see the way this works. How are we given by God to his son Jesus? How do we become his sheep? How are we forgiven of our sins and brought into this promise? Well, that comes to the second promise that Jeremiah shows us in Jeremiah 23. What was God's expectation of his people? Why were they facing judgment now? Because they had not obeyed. And what did God tell them? Be holy even as I am holy. Jesus uh, makes it even more narrow, I think. Be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect. And what does that mean for Judah and Israel? What does that mean for you here today? It means 100% absolute obedience. What was it that they lacked that brought them into judgment? Obedience. Righteousness. What is it that you lack? What is it that I lack here this morning? Righteousness. What promise does God make? Here in Jeremiah 23, this good shepherd who will come, who will gather the sheep, who will tend to them, and love them, and guard them. It says in verse 5, he will execute justice and righteousness. And then an even greater promise in verse 6, he himself will be their righteousness. This whole thing for Jeremiah is intended to be a contrast. The wicked rulers, the wicked shepherds, contrasted with the good shepherd. The sin and righteousness of the people contrasted with the righteousness and the holiness of God. And it goes all the way down into the details that aren't even necessarily in this passage. But in the time of Jeremiah, the king was a man named Zedekiah. If you hear in the word there, you can hear a little root of the same word we're talking about. Yahweh Sidkenu, Zedekiah. And Zedekiah's name in Hebrew is just that. Sidik Yahu. I always love the Yahoo names. Sidik Yahu. Same root word. Zedek. Righteous. Righteousness. And you'd say, well, what's the difference between Sidkenu and Sidik Yahu? Well, Sidik Yahu, Zedekiah is just a statement. It's a proclamation, the Lord is righteous. That's what Zedekiah's name means. The Lord is righteous. It's a declaration of who God is. And if we understand who he is, we also understand that it's a declaration of the demands he makes of his people. I am righteous, you be righteous. I am holy, you be holy. And there is the problem. There's no solution. It's a true, accurate, good statement. The Lord is righteous, but that's of no help to you because you're not righteous. 
Contrast that to this one who is coming. Jeremiah calls him in verse 5 a righteous branch. The anointed one, the good shepherd, prophet, priest, and king. Who will not only be the reality of that name, Siddiq Yahu, the Lord is righteous, but will be verse 6, Yahweh Tzikainu, the Lord is our righteousness. In other words, in this one who is coming, this good shepherd, this righteous king, not just a statement of who God is, he is holy and righteous and pure, but a statement of who he is to you. He is your righteousness and holiness. That which he demands. That which he demands of you, righteousness, is that which he provides in this Savior who will be your righteousness. Number three today, we see God's promise to save. This provision isn't automatic. A transaction has to take place. God doesn't just wish sins away. He doesn't just wink at your sin and say, it's okay. That's not the gospel. If anyone presents to you anything they call the gospel that doesn't first deal openly and honestly and truthfully with the nature of sin and God's judgment, you are not hearing the gospel. It must start there. God doesn't just cast our sins away automatically. He doesn't just wish them away or wink them away. Justice had to be done. Justice had to be served for God to be just. And that wasn't just a problem for Israel and Judah back then. And they, they, they faced God's judgment, but not us. No, you face that judgment too. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, written in the New Covenant, that the wrath of God, even right now, is being revealed, unfolded. The judgment of God is coming, not just Israel and Judah, but you now and here. And the question that Job asks is the question we should be asking today. In light of that judgment, how can I be right with God? Because the answer to that question depends on whether or not you will survive that judgment that is coming. How can a man be right with God? What can I do with all my sin? This is the problem. That even the most righteous deeds that I do are just filthy rags before a holy God. And how can I be clean? What, what can I do with all this sin? Well, the good news of the gospel is that that sin is placed on this righteous servant. Look over at Isaiah chapter 53, just a few pages to the left of Jeremiah there. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, very familiar passages. Surely he has borne our griefs. Who? The suffering servant. This one that Isaiah said would come. The one that Jeremiah said would come. Surely he has borne our griefs 
and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Look at this. Jeremiah, John, Jesus, all that mixed together here. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And why did he do this? Why does God's suffering servant come to bear our sins and our iniquities and our transgressions and to suffer the penalty for them in himself? Why does he do this? Look down at verse 11 of Isaiah 53. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall be, see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, watch this, make many to be accounted righteous because he shall bear their iniquities, so that many would be counted righteous. That which you don't have, that which I don't have, the Lord provides through the suffering of his servant, the suffering of this Savior. What becomes then of my sin? What becomes of my unrighteousness? It's laid on him. Well, what becomes of his righteousness and his goodness? And his obedience, what becomes of that for him? Well, here's the good news. It's given to you. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. God made him who knew no sin to become sin. Listen to that strong language Paul uses. Not just that he would bear your sin, though he did. Not just that he would take your sin or forgive your sin. All true. God made him to be sin. So that in him, by faith, you might receive, yes, attain, yes, but you might be the very righteousness of God. Because Jesus doesn't just give righteousness as the provision and the source, though he is those things, absolutely, 100%, only Jesus is the source of that righteousness. But it's not just that. It's that he himself is our righteousness. Yahweh, Sidkenu, the Lord Jesus is our righteousness. It's good that the Lord is righteous. It's good that the Lord is holy. Siddik Yahu, the Lord is righteous. But it's even better news today that he is our righteousness. And that he is your righteousness. This is the beauty and the glory of the gospel. I could not live a sinless life, but he did. I could not die for my sins in just six hours on a cross. It would take me an eternity, but he did. I couldn't rise again for my own justification, but he did. I couldn't ascend to the right hand of the Father the way I was and sit at his right hand and plead my cause, but he does. Jesus is our righteousness. Where Judah had failed, 
where Isaiah, where Israel had failed, where the kings and the prophets and the priests had failed. Listen, where you and I had failed, Jesus is victorious. And the good news of the gospel here today is that the invitation to you is that he says, here, take it. I've won the victory. I am your righteousness. Take it by faith. Turning away from your sin, turning away from yourself, turning to him and what he has done for us. Turning from my righteousness, which is nothing, to receive his righteousness, which is perfect. There's a good $10 theological word here for this. It's the word imputation. And the word imputation just means putting on. Putting on. That in salvation, we see a Savior who put on our unrighteousness and nailed it to a tree. And he gives us his perfect robes of righteousness to put on. In the Old Testament prophecy of Zechariah chapter 3, you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to tell you the story. Zechariah sees a vision of the high priest whose name is Joshua. Joshua is coming into the the temple to perform his high priestly duties. But Satan, the accuser, notices a problem with Joshua, the high priest. Here he comes in before the Lord to perform his duties. But Satan accurately points out that his clothes are filthy. His garments are stained and tainted and dirty. And the Lord rightly says, you cannot come before me this way. But then in the story, there's this figure, the angel of the Lord, just a messenger of the Lord, who comes between God and the accuser and Joshua, the high priest, and says, yes, his clothes are dirty. So take those off and I will provide him a clean turban for his head and clean robes to wear so that he may come in before your presence and serve you rightly. The gospel is there. The gospel is there. There's much to do. I didn't see any of it, only after the fact about the he gets us commercials in the Super Bowl. And I'm not going to make a blanket statement to say they're wrong or sinful or whatever. They just needed a lot more unpacking. You need more than just a few minutes to explain to people the problem of sin and God's righteousness. Yes, Jesus says, come to me as you are. Filthy, unclean, and needing rest, and I will give you rest. Yes, Jesus says that. That is the invitation. You don't have to clean yourself up before you come to Jesus. You just have to turn away from all of it and come to him in faith. 
But Jesus doesn't intend to leave you in your sin. He fills you with his Holy Spirit. He makes you a new person. He gives you a new birth. And there is a change that takes place. Yes, so Jesus says, come as you are, but you're not going to stay that way. Turn from your sin. Follow him. Trust him. That's what our shepherd invites us to do. And he says, take off your filthy garments. Take off those filthy robes. And in faith, reach out and receive my righteous robes. The question for you today is, have you put on the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ? Are you still in the changing room, the dressing room, the fitting room, trying to make everything that you do work and fit? Have you received the righteousness of God through faith in Christ? Or are you still wearing your old, dirty robes of self-righteousness? The invitation extends to you today. He's holding out a, a set of brand new righteous robes. And he says, here, take them. Reach out. Trust his promise. Receive Jesus as Savior. And receive his righteous robes for yourself. Now listen, believer. You say, that's all fine and good. Uh, unbelievers, the lost, yes, this is all important for them. What about me, though? Here, believers, listen. The Lord who sanctifies you, Yahweh, Mechadishkin, the Lord who sanctifies you, who makes you holy, is doing that even now. And you still do not move beyond this, that he is your righteousness. Paul says in Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's sanctification. Work it out. Do something. Obey. Follow. But that's immediately followed by verse 13. Immediately followed by verse 13. For it is God who is at work within you to make you willing and able to obey him. Even as believers in sanctification, we don't move beyond the Lord is our righteousness. Yes, we might have claimed that for the first time when we came to him in faith, when we were saved, when we were justified, but we don't move beyond that. Because the same God who was your righteousness when you came to faith in Christ is the same God who is your righteousness today by the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. And in eternity future, when we stand before the throne of God, it will still be the Lord who is your righteousness. In Matthew chapter 22, we see the story of a wedding feast. And it's, it's funny to me that Jesus basically ends the parable. The story seems to be done. We seem to have realized the point that these religious leaders had rejected Jesus, and so he was going to extend the invitation to others, this sign that, that Israel had rejected him, so the gospel was going to the Gentiles. All that had been concluded, and there's almost this after Marvel Cinematic Universe, after credits scene, where this man winds up in the wedding feast, but he's wearing the wrong clothes. He's there at the wedding garment, but he's not, he's wearing at the wedding feast, but he's not wearing the proper wedding garments. And in this closing scene that's a little dark, literally, 
The king, the host of the feast, have the, have the guards come and remove the man with the wrong clothes on and cast him into outer darkness, Jesus says, where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. You can't come to the wedding feast without the wedding garments on. And people try every way they know how to put on the wrong wedding garments. Whether it's any number of false religions and false teachings. It's my reliance on my self-righteousness or what I have done. Maybe your wedding garments are, I grew up in church, I went to Sunday school, I memorized the Bible, I did this, I'm faithful to Sunday school, I give my tithe, I'm faithful to church, I'm a good dad, I'm a good husband, I'm a good father. Whatever it is that you claim that is your wedding garment will not suffice on the day of the feast. The only garment that is acceptable in the presence of God The only wedding garment that will get you into the feast is the perfect, spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he says to you here today, it's yours if you will take it. The good news today is that what God demands of us, righteousness, He has provided for us in Christ. Unbelievers, you might be here today and you need a change of clothes. God says, here they are. There's a dressing room right over here. Come today. Come to Christ and be changed. Believers, in all your struggles with sin and temptation and suffering... Whatever it is that you bear, whatever burden it is that you bear, the hope for you every single day, believers, is the same hope that found you at first. Jesus is your righteousness. Cling to him. The song we're going to sing in closing today is just a simple, I, would, I hesitate to call it old chorus. The last line of the song says, I give you praise for you are my righteousness that's the good news of the gospel today I wonder if you know Jesus as your righteousness if not today can be the day our God and our Father we love you we thank you for what you've done for us through Jesus and God I ask that if there are unbelievers here today still struggling to make the robes of their own righteousness work. The prophet Isaiah tells us it's like a blanket that's too short or a couch that we don't fit on. It's useless. God, show them today that their only hope is the perfect, spotless obedience of Jesus. And draw them to yourself to receive it by faith. God, for those of us who know you as our Savior and our Lord, remind us today and every day that we could never be our own righteousness. We must praise you because you are our righteousness. 
God, help us as believers to rejoice in you and worship you for that promise. That you will have all that you have given to the Lord Jesus Christ. You will lose none of them. And that includes me. God, by your Holy Spirit, work and move. Make us more like Jesus as we remember who he is to us. Our righteousness and our life and our freedom forever. Thank you and praise you in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.